Well, turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 1, page 855 on your pew Bibles, in your pew Bibles. And we are beginning today a series through the Gospel of Luke. This is not merely an Advent sermon, as it were. Uh, This is appropriate for Advent. We're going to start with some of these infancy narratives. But this is a series that will continue on in January. Uh, We have preached in the history of this church through John and Mark. And this is uh, the third evangelist, the third gospel, Luke, that we turn to. So we pray that the Lord would bless our reading and bless this series. And I want to encourage you uh, during this holiday season as we start a new series uh, to work your way through the book of Luke. It's good to read uh, in one focused uh, time as much as possible. This is God's word for us today. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel. How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you. And to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, 
Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Join me now in our prayer found in the worship bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. Our outline this morning, we want to look at three elements of of what's going on here in the opening of uh, this gospel as we, we begin to immerse ourselves into a, a new author, a new genre, a new uh, word from God. First point, I want to look at uh, this introduction that Luke writes to his friend Theophilus. It's unique among the Gospels. Um, so the first point is an orderly account of things accomplished. And the second point is, is how and why that orderly account begins with the birth announcement of John, unique to Luke's Gospel. And third and finally, we want to look at Zechariah and his response to the gospel, to the good news, which he hears from the angel. So our first point, uh, Luke is unique in beginning his gospel account with an introductory uh, greeting or prologue that explains his purpose for writing. Uh, Now, this is good Greek style. Um, Luke is showing himself to be an educated man. Able to write in Greek at a high level of skill. Uh, these uh, four verses are what uh, in Greek we would call a single period or a single sentence. Uh, they hang together and it's, it's well constructed. Um, there were no uh, titles, covers on scrolls. And so, you know, the old saying, you can judge a book by its cover. And you think of like the kind of, uh, of, of imagery that uh, booksellers and publishers put on the cover of a book to try to sell it to identify an audience. Um, whether you're browsing on Amazon or some other online place or in an actual bookstore, if you remember what those things are. And um, so there's no, there's no cover in the ancient world. The opening of a book, the first words of a book often became the title. This functioned as the title page, the cover, as it were. And Luke is, is saying here um, that he is addressing a Gentile audience. People who would have understood this type of storytelling, this history, this announcement. And so he is very much signaling from the get-go, not only his purpose and design, but who he is communicating with. And as we go along, uh, we don't want to spend a lot of time with introductory matters because we are in the season of Advent. Um, But we will be thinking more about who Luke is and how his telling of this story uh, reflects him. He He, in a sense, speaks in the first person here. It seemed good to me also. So he's introduced himself into the story. He's not a a dispassionate narrator. But even though he introduces himself as the author, um, he doesn't identify himself by name. Neither in Luke or in his second volume, Acts, do we find uh, the name of Luke. But he does speak in the first person. He does speak in the first person at many points in the Acts narrative. He's talking about the Apostle Paul taking journeys on ships. He says, then we boarded the ship and we sailed to this place. And so at parts of the Acts narrative, he's with Paul. And at other parts, he is not. He's describing it in the third person. 
And it is universally agreed by the early church that this uh, author of this gospel and of Acts is the, the Luke who is identified by Paul as a companion of Paul, a physician. And so in Colossians chapter 4, in the closing uh, greetings, as it were, Paul uh, writes to Luke, uh, or he brings greetings rather from Luke. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. So Paul in Colossians, writing to Colossians, is in prison, probably in Rome. And we have a clear indicator here that someone named Luke is with Paul. Um, In 2 Timothy 4, probably similar circumstance, Paul writes, Luke alone is with me. Luke in the early church gains a reputation as being Paul's most steadfast companion. Perhaps in part under the influence of, of this verse. Luke alone is with me. So Paul is indicating maybe more here. His degree of confidence in Luke. And in Philemon, that short book that we all read all the time. It's so tiny we piss right over it. Epaphras, again in closing. My fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus sends greetings to you. And so do Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. So Luke is a fellow worker with Paul. And as the Gospel of Mark, if you want to go back and listen to those sermons in our archive, the Gospel of Mark is written by someone who is known as a a, a colleague and a companion of Peter, one of the early apostles. So Luke is known as a colleague and a companion of Paul. So we have two Gospels, as it were, that reflect the perspective of Peter, the apostle to the Jews, and Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Luke is nowhere near as prominent in the story of the New Testament as an, as an author, as an individual, as Paul or Peter or John. But Luke and Acts together comprise almost a quarter of our New Testament scriptures. An important, significant part of what we know about Jesus and the early church is recorded in the pages of Luke's writings. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are these three Gospels who have a very similar viewpoint. The Gospel of John is is quite unique and distinctive. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often known as the synoptic Gospels. That means uh, they view uh, the events of Christ and the Gospel together with one eye. Synoptic, with uh, one eye. And 40% of the material in Luke does come from Mark. Uh, Luke says quite openly, I looked at people who had written previously about Jesus. I'm using as a historian these sources and other sources, written sources and eyewitness accounts. So about 40% of Luke is also found in Mark, almost in very similar or identical form. And there's another 40% of Luke that's really unique to Luke. So it's stuff that he derived from his interviews, from his conversations. The many opportunities he would have had. This includes the the prodigal son. uh, Many parables. uh, The birth accounts of of John. And the angelic uh, greetings. And there's quite a bit of. uh, As people look at this material that's unique to Luke. uh, A lot of it involves women. And the followers of Jesus who were women. Including Mary. So there's a good bit of thought given to the fact that Luke. Especially interviewed the, the women who had followed Jesus. And in his gospel. He provides that perspective. In a useful way. 
And so the second or one, another thing I want us to see from this opening uh, prologue is that Luke states his purpose, right? That Theophilus might know the truth, might have certainty concerning what he had been taught. And the Greek word here is the catechesis, the words you've been catechized in. I want to give you greater knowledge, greater certainty. Luke is writing for a Gentile audience, people who not, may not be fully versed in the Old Testament, the hopes and expectations that Jesus fulfills. Clearly, the early church, uh, if you think of the situation that Theophilus was in, we don't know who Theophilus was or is. Nowhere else is he mentioned in the pages of the New Testament. Uh, but he could very easily be uh, someone living in Rome, in the Roman church, right? Who may not have had firsthand experience with the Old Testament scriptures. And these new believers, these Gentile believers that were filling many of the churches, especially that Luke and Paul ministered to, they wouldn't have had really a clue of the background of the Old Testament. And remember, they did not have a New Testament. There is no canon of Scripture. There are various recordings and messages they hear from the apostles in the first hand, and they are beginning to see maybe Mark or different pieces of Scripture. But Luke says, it seemed appropriate to me to provide an orderly account, to put all this stuff in order. Again, if he's in Rome during this season, we don't know the exact date. Although there is a a massive uh, rebellion, um, the great war in AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem, which doesn't factor at all into Luke and Acts. Acts closes with, with Paul in prison. So there is a general presumption, especially among uh, more conservative scholars, that Luke is not writing at a later date, right? He concludes the story before AD 70 with Paul in prison. And so that is, at least on on the surface, a useful perspective for when Luke is probably constructing this narrative. We have the blessing of four Gospels. We have the blessing of four different perspectives on the birth event of Christ. Luke's audience, Theophilus, did not. They had different stories, different messages. Sometimes in sermons, I I get my words fumbled up. I might refer to the wrong page or the wrong name or things like that. And think of people who only had the oral presentation of the gospel story, right? It's coming to them by the hands, by the mouths of, of human communicators, No inspired text. And that's what Luke, through the inspiration of the Spirit, here is providing an orderly account. And Luke, brothers and sisters, I believe, is a reliable recorder. He speaks here of his method. Not only his purpose, but his method. There are many who have followed all things closely for some time past. I'm going to compile, put in an orderly account everything he said. And though he acknowledges that he himself was not an eyewitness of these first things, for instance, the birth appearances uh, that we read about here, but he had access, maybe to James, the brother of Jesus, to Paul, to Peter, perhaps to Mary. Closing up this first point, and by way of application, we hear a lot of uh, messages of of peace and hope and joy in the holiday season. And they're often grounded in broad sentiment. Uh, memories, romantic images. Um, brothers and sisters, the, the good news that the angel brings 
The good news that Luke records here is not a sentiment. It's not a philosophy. It's not a recipe for success. It's history. It's good news. It is the story of the word becoming flesh. God entering human time and space. Events that bizarrely, unlike any other human events, have a really profound impact on you and I here today. Those of us who, through that same spirit, have put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Luke is going to say, as does Paul, right, through these words and through his story, that through this word, through this message, through this good news, there's increase in the church and growth and health and life. And that's the message we have for you today. And it's all grounded in this, in what God has done in history. So rejoice this holiday season that we have this objective foundation to our faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to move on to verse 5 and following. And what Luke considers an orderly account begins with the story, not only of John the Baptist, but of the birth of John the Baptist. And Luke sets the birth narrative of John sort of side by side with Jesus in a very intentional way. Um, If any of you have ever uh, been, uh, for lack of a better word, a historian, written a a history essay for a class, right, or a course. Um, I wrote a doctoral dissertation, which some foolish company published in a book form, right? And a lot of what I wrote was, was history, And you could say, well, when you're writing history, you're just recording objective facts, right? But we all know uh, there's a study of of how to do history. That You compile history in a way that communicates the, the broader truth of what's going on in a clear fashion. And so Luke's not just giving a a TikTok here like the Washington, like the White House press pool. The president woke up, he had breakfast, he he gave a press conference. Luke is, is compiling a story here, a narrative account. And one of the things he does is he contrasts John with Jesus. He sets them side by side. John the Baptist was a a very prominent figure in the first century of the Jewish people. We see when Paul is ministering in the Mediterranean, there are people all across the Mediterranean basin who have been baptized into the baptism of John. So there are John followers, as it were, all across uh, the Jewish uh, people. And so it's very important, and all of our gospel accounts agree, right? Jesus is greater than John. Jesus is the one to whom John was pointing toward. John says, I must decrease, he must increase. And so you have these two very prominent figures, and Luke is saying, we need to understand the relationship between John and Jesus. Now the angel describes the work of John by drawing on the prophecy of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 and 4. If you want to flip back in your pew Bibles, I don't have the page number before me, but you can go to Matthew and turn the page before. This is the very last prophet in our Old Testament English Bible. Malachi says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So this is the Lord saying, I'm going to send someone ahead of me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Uh, The strains of Handel's Messiah, I know some of you went and heard it on Thursday night, uh, are here in the background, right? The Lord will come suddenly to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. And these final closing verses, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet 
before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The day of the Lord, brothers and sisters, is a day of settling accounts. It's a day of judgment. And if you are not right with God at his coming, it is a day of terror. But what God is giving here in the close of the Old Testament is a word of grace and a promise of hope for his people. I will let you know before I come. I will give you a warning. And Malachi continues, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. It's a promise of a remnant among God's people. I'm not going to utterly wipe you all out. That's what you deserve. I'm going to give you an opportunity to turn and be prepared for the one who is coming. And this is what uh, Gabriel says, almost quoting word for word Malachi. This is in verse 16 of Luke chapter 1. He, John, will go before him, the Lord, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So Luke alone goes into this detail, setting up for us the purpose and the the background of the ministry of John the Baptist. And a part of the pattern here, right, is a very typical Old Testament pattern. And even though Luke began stylistically with a very Greek introduction, the narrative now that he begins to give, he drops right into the style of Old Testament Greek scriptures. The Old Testament, written in Hebrew, had been translated into Greek. Uh, We call this the Septuagint, uh, the, the Greek Old Testament. And Luke is a master of this text. He knows it well. He alludes to it regularly. And he is able to write in a very similar style. Think, have you ever come across in the Old Testament a woman beyond her years? Barren, longing for a child, feeling cursed of God. Of course, uh, Sarah heard this promise for many years and it was finally fulfilled in Isaac. Uh, In the days of the judges, Manoah's wife was barren and the Lord sent an angel and sent her a child Who was Samson. And Hannah. Likewise in the temple. Right. Hannah praying. And we see. The birth of Samuel. So Luke puts the story. Of John the Baptist. As the beginning of the story of Jesus. Right. Luke puts it in the context of these Old Testament promises. And like many of the Old Testament prophecies, it would say in the third year of the reign of so-and-so, right? He says, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. So he's setting the historical context. Again, Luke will begin chapter 2 of his gospel by talking about the days of Emperor Augustus, the Caesar, right? He's very concerned to say this is a historical account. If John's birth will be shown as being remarkable here... Woman past her years, barren, otherwise giving birth to a child with an elderly husband. Again, Jesus' birth narrative will be even more a miracle. Elizabeth had to wait till after Zechariah got home from his uh, time of service before she would conceive. Um, Zechariah was very much involved in the conception of John the Baptist. This is not a miracle in that sense. And yet it is a wonder, right, that this elderly barren couple... Gives birth to a child. Even in the womb. When Elizabeth greets Mary. We'll see the Baptist. 
celebrating, exulting within her, right? The greater one who is to follow. So what does this announcement tell us about uh, John's office? He's the final Old Testament prophet. He will be great before the Lord. So he is a forerunner. That's his office to come before and prepare the way of the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. Not because no one should ever drink wine or strong drink. Right? But because in the Old Testament, many priests during time of service would be set apart. And the Nazarite vow was a subset of of people in the Old Testament who were permanently uh, set apart from partaking of alcohol. But John, this is the greatest of these Old Testament prophets. He will never, due to the special nature of his office, he is filled with the Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Again, a special calling. Jesus will say, when asked about John in Matthew chapter 11, no one greater than John has ever been born of woman. But you remember what he says next. Yet, yet the least in the kingdom is greater than he. What does Jesus mean? He means exactly what Luke's pointing to here. John might be the greatest one to ever come on earth. And yet the kingdom of God has made us all prophets and priests and kings. To go before our Lord into the world. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. This is conversion. He preaches a message of repentance. Members of the people of God had fallen into a slothful state. Those verses we read in Malachi were some four or five hundred years old. I don't know about you. I don't sit around reading a lot of four or five hundred year old texts. I don't derive a lot of hope or confidence from them. When someone prophesies that something good's going to happen to me today, right? Well, right, you know, Nostradamus or for that matter, Martin Luther. Like, you know, what do these people have to say about my experience today? Forty years is a long time. People persevered. We sing these songs in this season. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Can you imagine waiting 400 years? Zechariah himself, who we'll see in a moment, was presented as something of an ideal Israelite, right? He needed to be converted. Zechariah is an example of this old covenant people grown dull and slothful. Mark chapter 1, Mark begins his gospel by talking as well about this messenger, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And this comes as well from Isaiah chapter 40, in addition to, to, um, to Malachi. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice, this is John the Baptist, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And what what Isaiah is talking about here is the experience of God's people in exile. He's prophesying the end of that exile. And he's saying someone's going to come and build a highway, a super highway, like an interstate system from Babylon back to God's holy land, that holy hill. And he's going to bring people back. That Jerusalem's time of strife and warfare is over. Words of peace and hope and comfort. Make straight. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain made low. 
uneven ground, rough places, plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Hear that prophetic word. Why believe this message? Because the mouth of the Lord has said it. This promise. The comforting words of Isaiah are now fulfilled. The Savior has come to pardon our sins. Our warfare is over. And to receive him, we must acknowledge our sins, our need for this Savior. The people prepared are the people that know they're sinners. That they know that the destruction all around them, including the destruction we see in our world today, brothers and sisters, is a fruit of our sin and the common curse on this land. We need a Savior. We need someone outside of us to rescue us and deliver us. And even here, serving God in the temple, offering our prayers, we can forget. We can forget our need for our deliverer. We can think we have it all squared away. And of course, not one of us does. And this brings us to the third point. And the great sort of takeaway from this opening scene, this opening movement in uh, Luke's narrative. Zechariah doesn't believe the angel. Zechariah doubts the gospel. And I think it's fair to ask each one of ourselves as we hear the same gospel today, the same Christ proclaimed. Do we believe? Of course, we're all baptized. <laughs> we're all members of this delightful covenant community. And we know that in our weakness, Christ is for us. But let's look at Zechariah. He's a priest. He's a model of a faithful Israelite. He's married to a wife of the daughter of Aaron. They're righteous. They walk blamelessly. They follow all the commandments and statutes. They follow the rules. They go to church. They're where they're supposed to be. They're doing what they're supposed to do. But they had no child. And this was a reproach. These are like Job's counselors. Job's going through a tough time. We know why. He must deserve it. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth walked around. Marked out as having this special curse. We open this passage with Herod. Herod was an Edomite. Yeah, Judea has a a king, but it's a fake king. The Edomites are the, the followers of Esau that God's people were constantly at war with. And Herod had been promoted uh, by the Senate. Israel is as a nation under a curse. As they were for these 400 years between the Testaments. They're living in occupied territory. And the angel meets Zechariah in the temple. During this time when he's chosen by lot to offer incense. And Zechariah was probably one of 18,000 priests who could have been offering incense. So this was a once in a lifetime shot. Once you were chosen by lot, that was it. This is the apex of his priestly career. There will never be a more important time in his life. What does the angel say to him? As the angelic messengers often usually do. Do not be afraid. But in this moment of prayer. The offering of incense is indicative of prayer. The crowds. All the crowds has gathered their offering prayers. The hour of prayer. The angel comforts Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. 
And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. John means Yahweh has been gracious. Yahweh has given a gift. John is the answer to Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer. He's also a gracious answer uh, to Israel's prayer that the prophet of the Most High is sent. He's an answer to all the people's prayer that God is sending the deliverer. And Zechariah's response makes it clear that he does not believe the good news that Gabriel brought him. Of course, uh, we also have the angel's opinion of Zechariah's response. Mary's response, as we'll see, isn't so different. She says, I'm a virgin. How's this going to happen? But we know the way Gabriel responds that, and Mary's subsequent words, I'm the servant of the Lord. Be to it as you have said. Zechariah doubts. How can I know? Interesting, isn't it, that Luke writes that Theophilus might know that he might be certain. And the first character in the story is a priest, a perfect Israelite, who wants to know, wants to be assured. And Gabriel responds with his name. I am Gabriel. Like, hey, heads up, buddy. (laughs) Remember the last time I was here? I stand in the presence of God. Again, the word of the Lord is spoken. And I bring to you, I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news, this message. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which were God's words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And Luke is powerfully setting up the whole dynamic of his story, right? Hey, Jewish uh, believers, as you read these words, can you hear the gospel? Do you believe the gospel? Here it is. This is the fulfillment of all God's promises. And this is perhaps, again, the most contrast, the most potent contrast between these two birth narratives that are interwoven, as it were, as we're flashing back and forth from the hill country of Judea and Nazareth up north. The contrast between Zechariah and Mary. Mary, who believes, and the angel's verdict. You did not believe my words. Next week, we'll see Gabriel goes to Galilee. He's going from the very center of religious life, the temple, the altar, to the fringes of religious life. And in the center where all the religious people are, he doesn't find faith. And in the fringes, he finds faith. Faith is not necessarily found where you expect it. Faith often comes when we realize that our resources are gone. Even the parents of John the Baptist... The one who is great before the Lord. Do not understand. Do not believe that God is working powerfully in history today to save them from their sins. Zechariah is only turned by God's judgment. By his chastening. It's a reminder that the gospel is not easy to believe. Luther says uh, in his account about the Annunciation. He says there are three miracles here spoken by the angel. I think Luther's quoting someone from the early church. There are three miracles here. I've said it three times now that there are three miracles here. And I need to make sure I remember what the three miracles are. He says, the promise that God will be made man, Emmanuel. And the promise that a virgin will have a baby. It's the second miracle. And the third miracle is Mary's faith. That Mary believes and trusts. 
The gospel is not easy to believe, especially for those who have power and prestige and positions. The kind of people who live in Washington, D.C. don't need the gospel. They have a lot of what our world has to offer. You might kind of be wondering where you're going to come up with your rent payment next month or balancing bills at the end of the calendar year, you know, getting ready for taxes and all that fun stuff. But we're the wealthiest people that have ever walked the face of the earth. We live in the most abundant time and place. Human history is known among the billions of souls that have not known where tomorrow's meal was coming from. We're so full. We're so abundantly blessed with physical things. Yet faith is no easier for us. It is much harder. It's so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Luke begins his gospel not with faith, but with doubt, with unbelief. But the great news, the song we're going to sing in a moment, the song of Zechariah from chapter later on in Luke's beginning, is that Zechariah comes to believe. He looks back at those promises. He sees that they are fulfilled. And he will take his chastening and he will repent. And the good news that Luke preached, that Paul preached, that we preach today is that the door is always open for God's people daily to repent and come in faith. So Luke serves up for us in Zechariah, a model Israelite for all of the failures of God's people who has come to turn from that sin and to put his trust in God's promise. Think of Zechariah being made mute Luke's companion, Paul, likewise zealous for the ways of the elders, was made blind. Right? God can strike us down sometimes. Blind, mute. And yet, by the grace of his gospel, by the grace of his gift, he gives us a voice and words of faith to respond to this word. Let's pray. Merciful God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice in this orderly account that you have set before us your servant, Luke, on these pages, copied over for centuries, for millennia, from hand to hand, put here in language we can understand, plain as day, for all to see and to know to proclaim, to preach openly from the rooftops, not in a corner of the precincts of the holy temple accessible only by a high priest every once in a career, but accessible to us all as we go forth from this place. Your words of promise, delivered by a mighty messenger, Gabriel, and delivered by your great son, the word made flesh. Lord, may we in this season... Be prepared for this gospel anew each and every day. And may our faith grow strong and bear fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.